0: Today, we start the important seven letters of Jesus to the seven churches in Revelation that are in the region of what today is modern day Turkey. They were literal churches in a circular area where you could actually travel from one church to the other. They were on a trade route that was by a port in, in Efba, near Ephesus. And then it would move through ephesus to the other ones you could also reverse it and go the other way but these were literal churches that were planted by several different people paul did not plant ephesus we'll be talking about ephesus today and we'll talk a little bit about that the title of them the, this message is the church that got everything right but one thing they were an amazing church if you went to ephesus in their day you would want to be a part of that church and they had everything right except one thing. It just means that that one thing was pretty important. And I have a shorter title, and this is kind of a funky one. Love's got everything to do with it. And my wife asked if I was gonna sing that song today, and I am not, although I, I love to make her happy, and I'm sure that it would make her quite happy. I'm not sure it would make you happy if I sang that song today. But yes, love has everything to do with it, and Ephesus is the church that left their first love. And this will speak to any of us that are doing work for christ and it's become just something we do and we've we've, we just don't have that deep abiding powerful meaningful love with him now these seven churches seven is an important number in the book of revelation we know in numerology it stands for completeness we talk about it meaning perfection it's in a little different way than we would think of perfection as something not having any, being pure and not having any problems. It just means complete. Seven days in a week, seven notes in a scale. It's the idea of completeness. And so these seven churches is a picture to us of the completeness of the church. And I think that everything that is said to all of these churches is something that we can stop and look at and evaluate within ourselves. We wanna listen close to the things that Jesus says to the churches. Because these are the letters to the church and before, and, and this book of Revelation is going to reveal judgment on the world. And God tells us that he's going to judge the, the church first. If God's going to judge the world, then he's going to judge us first. We want to make sure we evaluate ourselves properly, especially if we're living in the day where we are a light to the end times. And we are living in the end times. I believe that we can show that. That doesn't mean Jesus is coming back September 26th or next year or in two years, but it means that we look around us and we see things happening and go, this is what things are gonna be like in the last days. And we are living in the last days. And Jesus could come back at any moment. Now, 1 Peter four seventeen, talking about judging the church first, Peter said, for the time has come for judgment to begin in the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? That's a pretty heavy verse. He's saying God's gonna judge us who are his first, but what is the end gonna be for those who don't belong to him? That our judgment may be discipline that is severe, that hurts, that's no fun, but what is the end of those who don't believe? We wanna subject ourselves to the judgment or discipline of God. Hebrews 12, five through seven speaks of this discipline. It says, "And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as a son. For what son is there whom the father does not chasten?" Then Hebrews 12:11, "Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful, Nevertheless, afterwards it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So we may receive some chastening as we make our way through these letters, but we want to receive that. We want God to speak to us. We want God to tell us what we're doing that is wrong. We want encouragement from God, and God's good at that. We want him to tell us what we're doing that's right, but we also want God to speak to us if we are doing anything that's wrong. And I want to remind you, that sin is deceptive, Hebrews tells us, and we can be self-deceived, the Bible says. And so if sin is deceptive and I can deceive myself, then I can clearly think, I'm okay, I don't have any problems, I don't have anything wrong, when there is something wrong. And so we wanna have an open heart for God to say to us, I want to bring this correction in your life. And so we pick it up in Revelation chapter 2, verses one through seven, verse one to the angel of the church of Ephesus right Now, we talked about this a little bit last week, that the word for angel here is angelos in the Greek, and it means messenger, and it most often speaks of literal angels. But you should know there are those who believe that these are the pastors of the church, and Jesus called John the Baptist that he was a messenger from God, a messenger sent from God, and that word that's used there is angelos. So I had said last week that the majority of time the word is used and the way it's used in the Bible talking about a being, it's talking about angels. And that's true. But there, there is precedent for it being a person. And the other thought on this is the internal argument that he says to the angel of the church of Ephesus. And then he says, I know your works, your labor, your patience. And then he says, and I have this against you. So if this is a being and he's saying to him, I know your works, your labor, it seems like he's writing to a person instead of a a being. And so I just wanted you to know both sides of this uh, as to why some say may say that this is the pastor of the church that God's holding in his hand and that God's giving the pastor instruction. Now, I think it could still be an angel that he's instructing and the pastor would be part of that. The church would be part of the direction, but I don't think that the angel of a church would be the one uh, who's doing the works that he has things against. All right. So I just wanted to kind of clarify that a little bit as we start. And then he says to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the great cities of the ancient world. Some historians tell us that it was second only to Rome. It was a Roman city. It was a free city. And it was a city that was allowed to govern itself. And Ephesus was made the capital of Asia Minor. There were tens of thousands of people who lived in Ephesus during the first century, hundreds of thousands of people that lived there at different points and times. There was a theater in Ephesus that could hold 24,000 people. I was thinking about Mikhail Center. I think that's 18,000. Am I right? I always have to ask. I should look these things up before I say something like that, huh? But it's around there. It's around that spot. So you get an idea how big this theater is. And the church was founded really by Paul. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla went went to Ephesus. They might have gone there because there were two different times during this period where the Jews were removed from Rome. They were a sanctioned religion. But Rome also expelled all Jewish people two different times during the first century. And Aquila and Priscilla seem to be from Rome. They may have been expelled during that time. They ran into Apollos in Ephesus. And Apollos had a group of people that he was teaching. And I always forget which one's the girl. Aquila, I think, takes Apollos aside with Priscilla there and they show him the proper way. So here you have this couple, man and woman, and it says both of them show Apollos the proper way because Apollos didn't know the word completely, fully. And then Paul came along, met a group of Christians that were there, and he's, he asked about the Holy Spirit. And they said, we didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. He said, what were you baptized into? And they said, John's baptism. So they were aware of John the Baptist. Maybe this was where Apollos didn't have the full word of God, and so Paul tells them about Jesus and salvation and they receive the Lord and they're filled with the Spirit and they speak with tongues and, and, and they begin to prophesy and God empowers this church in Ephesus and they become an amazingly powerful church. So that within the first couple of decades from the church being planted in Ephesus, they were so effective as a church. I, I, could, I could pray that we could be this effective in the city that God's called us in, in Tucson? That it affected the commerce of statues of idols. They had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world there. It was the temple to Artemis or the temple to Diana. It was larger than a soccer field. It was made out of all marble. It was some 60 feet high. The marble columns, it had 40 something statues inside of it. People came from all over the world to see this temple. And there is the Greek goddess Artemis, and then there is the Artemis of Ephesus. And although they have similarities, there were differences between the two. So when you look at the Greek goddess of the hunts and fertility, yes, uh, the Ephesus Artemis was that, but also had morphed into something different For that region, so you can look up Diana of Ephesus or or Artemis of Ephesus, and you can look up Artemis in Greek mythology, and you can look at some of the differences. You can see some of the statues, how what they what they looked like, and um, literally it was the goddess of fertility. There were uh, priestesses that were prostitutes. The city had a brothel. The Christians uh, had to definitely make a stand. It was also a Roman city that had a, 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 it had a place to worship Caesar, Augustus, and it had a place to worship Diomission in the 80s. So Diomission came in and he built a temple to himself and there was a temple to Caesar Augustus that was there. Temple was the word that I was looking for while I paused. A uh, temple to Caesar Augustus there. And when you would go into the Agora in Ephesus, historians tell us that they had incense that was there, and you would have to pinch a bit of that incense and say, Caesar is Lord. As you went into the Agora, the Agora is the marketplace. There was a portico, a large portico, all the way around the Agora in Ephesus. It was a, a city where people were committed to uh, emperor worship. And because of that, the church had its challenges. Being in a place where the morals were so loose, being in a place where emperor worship was so powerful the church was able to make a stand and become so powerful that Demetrius, the silversmith, made a stand saying, this guy Paul has come here and he's taught this and we aren't able to sell our statues anymore. And because the church was so effective, it affected the sale of statues that it caused a riot in the streets. And you can read about this in Acts 20, 19 and 20, a riot in the streets. And they ran into the theater I told you about that was 24,000 people. And when one guy tried to quiet them down and talk, they started chanting um, the goddess Diana, the goddess Diana. And they did that for two hours the whole time. And, And by the way, they drug in two of Paul's traveling companions while this riot's going on. And the whole time Paul's trying to get in there, but his friends are holding him back from going in, which would be a scene I would love to see how it played out. Paul wanting to go in there, them stopping him from going in. And finally they stopped it they said if Demetrius has a problem, he could go to the courts and he can deal with it, and it stopped. But that tells us how effective this church in Ephesus was. Now, Jesus writes a letter to them. That would have happened sometime in the 50s, in the first century. Now it's the, it's the, it's the 90s. It's the late 90s in the first century. So it's, it's at least, it's around four decades later that Jesus now writes this letter to the church at Ephesus. And here's what we learn about them. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the golden lampstand. Every letter will open up with a description of Jesus that fits into the letter. So Jesus says, I hold the seven messengers in my right hand, and I walk among the seven lampstands, which is the presence of Jesus within the light of the world. We as a church are the light of the world, and Jesus walks in our presence. And he holds the seven angelos, messengers, angels, in his hands. And he says in verse two, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars, and you have persevered and have patience. Now, that's a great list. When you go back, he says, I know your works. They were not a church that just attended and then didn't do anything for their community. They were used by God. He says, your labor, your works and your labor and your patience. And we need to understand that what God calls us to do, we do with patience. Even though we might not see fruit, we continue to do what God's calling us to do, believing that the fruit's going to come. And that's why the Bible says that in ministry, in the book of James, we need to be like farmers who patiently await the early and the later rain. And that we need to, in Galatians, don't grow weary in doing good, for in due season you will reap if you do not faint. So they had faithfully worked and labored in patience, as we know, from, for decades. Also, they were moral. They were a moral church. When you study the church at Corinth, they were an immoral church. Paul had to correct them and bring morals back into the church because they were like the world around them. But Ephesus, it says, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And this, he's going to, I think, expand on that in a little while. They were living in a pagan culture. There are things that, were, that took place in Ephesus, in the temples that were there. There were 14 different temples that we won't even talk about that are not worthy to be spoken of from the pulpit. So there are things going on in this immoral culture that they were living and they didn't tolerate evil. Meaning if someone was involved in these things that they took care of it. They dealt with what they had to deal with and they challenged people who were living that compromising lifestyle. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and not are not. Remember that they're not far from the region of Galatia. Galatia is in Turkey, Asia Minor, then, and Turkey and, and Ephesus is ne- kind of next to it. It's a ways away, but Paul had these people following him, who were legalists, who were telling people that they had to keep the law in order to really be saved. Paul wrote Romans to respond to that. Paul wrote Galatians to respond to it. Paul said, "If anybody comes to you teaching you anything different than what you've already heard, let them be accursed." So adding to the gospel, that you have to keep the law, is a different gospel. And these guys went in claiming they were apostles. And Paul defends himself in Galatians, remember? Paul says, Paul says I, I'm an apostle, are they an apostle? And he talks about what he did as a Hebrew, I mean, as a, as a Pharisee. And so they tested those who said they were apostles and they weren't, they found them to be liars, that they were not telling the truth. They were not giving in to the false teaching of their day. And and this is why I say, this is the kind of church that if you attended, you would go, you know what? They're standing strong on righteousness and holiness. They are testing false teachers and finding them to be liars. They're doing the work and they're patiently doing that work that they've been called to do. And it says, and found them liars. Then verse three, and you have persevered and have patience and labored, for my name's sake, and have not become weary. On top of that, they weren't like, oh, we just can't wait for Jesus to come back. I'm so tired of they were just cooking along, doing the work that God had called them to do. A good church that had everything right, except one thing. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you. Now, in every letter, there is either a commendation or a complaint. In some letters, there's both. In the letter to the Ephesus, there's both. To the Ephesians, there's both. To the letter of Smyrna, the next letter, there's only a a commendation. There's no complaint against that church. To the church of Philadelphia, there's no complaint. There's only an accommodation. In the church of Laodicea, there's no accommodation. There's only a complaint. But there's either a complaint or an accommodation in both on all of these letters. And so what he has against them here is that you have left your first love. they were doing all this great work. But they were no longer in love with Jesus. And I think it's important for us to recognize that this is a danger for all of us. That all of us could be doing the work for God, doing it faithfully, doing it right, not doing it wrong. No one could come in and say you're a false teacher or that you're listening to false teachers or that you're not doing the work of the gospel. But love is the most important thing. And if somehow you no longer have that love, that passion, well, Jesus is basically going to tell the Ephesians, I won't put up with it. I won't have you doing the work for me without being in love with me. Jesus needs to be the greatest passion that we have. God needs to be that. The Bible says that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all of our strength. And that's in Deuteronomy 6.5, that's the Old Testament. And then Jesus again spoke of it when he was asked in Matthew 12, 29 through 31, let me read it to you. Jesus answered him, he was asked by a, by a, scribe, by a Pharisee, I think, what's the greatest commandment in this one? And he answered him, the first of all the commandments is hear, O Israel. The Lord God, the Lord is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, heart, soul, mind and with all of your strength. This is the first and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So God is to be the greatest love that we have. Jesus, Jesus used hyperbolic language to talk about the love that we we're supposed to have for him. He said, unless you hate your father and mother and wife and children, you cannot be my disciple. And we go, that doesn't sound like Jesus. We're supposed to love our mother and father and honor them. We're supposed to love our wives. The Bible says husbands love your wives. We're supposed to love our children. So what was Jesus saying? It's hyperbolic language. He's saying the love for him is to be the highest love that we have. The most important love in our lives is the love that we have for him. There were other places where he spoke like this, where he used this kind of language to tell us that we were supposed to have this strong love. The the word for agape is an interesting word. The the word for agape in the Bible for love, there's four different words for love, but the word agape was a a kind of a co-opted word into the New Testament. And we get the definition of that word. There's a few words that are like that in the New Testament. And it was co-opted out of their culture that meant to gape, agape, to gape. And it was kind of brought into. and we got, we, we got a definition of it in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is long-suffering, love is kind, love is patient. A love a does no evil, doesn't, is not puffed up. All of the things that we have for that definition. And how important it is this word agape, which is to make a decision to love someone, but certainly would not negate having a fondness for, that phileo kind of a love. It's not just, you know what, I serve you and I love you, um, but I don't have any feelings towards you. We are, are to love God with a passion. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3 tells us of the importance of this love. It says, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love I have become sounding brass and a clanging cymbal." Even if you talk in the tongues of of every language in the world, and even in an angelic language, but you don't have love, you're only making noise. Not only are you only making making noise, you're like a brass cymbal. Do any of you guys give your children brass cymbals for Christmas presents? You probably think before you do that, because it's just banging and clanging, it's just making noise. And so the Ephesus church was doing great things, but they had lost their love. And so it was not effective as God wants it to be effective. He doesn't want us just to do work for him because it's not works that save us. It's a relationship with him that saves us. And it's possible that works can kind of start to take that place. And we feel like, you know what, I'm doing things for him. I'm sharing, I'm sharing Christ for him. I'm living my life for him. And, and we lose or we leave that first love. It goes on to say in, in verse two, and though I have, this is First Corinthians 13, again, on the importance of love. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith that I could move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. So love has to be the center of everything that we're doing, no matter what we do. Then he says in verse three, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. So the Ephesus church now is a picture of what 1 Corinthians 13 is said to have been. By the time that John writes them this letter around 95 in the first century, they have had Aquila Priscilla there, Apollos there, Paul there, Titus there, Tychicus there, and John there as well, ministering to them. They've had all, Paul, when he went there, he would preach in the synagogue for three months. But when they started speaking poorly of Christ, he moved to the school of Tyrannius, and he taught there every afternoon for two full years. So he poured, Paul lived there longer than anywhere else and poured the word of God into him. They knew it all. They knew it well. But they still allowed themselves to leave their first love. And I want you to notice the way that he says that. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. They didn't lose their first love. They left it. They weren't like, where is it? I can't find it. I used to love God, but I, I, they left it. They left it by not doing the things that they need to do to maintain the closeness in the relationship with God. A marriage is a great example of this. You can be in a marriage with someone and it can become just duty. If I give flowers to my wife and I say, you know, I just want to really give the proper respect to the institution of marriage. And since you're my wife, I wanna give you these flowers. Does she even want those flowers from me? Not at all. Well, I wanna do something for you because I know that in marriage, the the husband's supposed to do things for his wife. Again, it's not gonna make my wife, you know, feel very tenderhearted towards me. But if I tell her, I love you, you're extremely important to me, and I wanted to get you some flowers, I thought of you, I got you some flowers. Now we're kindling that love relationship together. This is what happens between us and God. It turns into, I'm saved, I'm doing works for you, and we leave that first love that we had for him. And so the remedy for this is in verse five. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember the beginning, when you first learned about God, when you wanted to know more about him when you had a desire to know as much about God as you could, to spend time with him and to grow. Remember those first things. He says, repent. You remember and then you repent. And to repent means to change your mind. So this is us saying, I feel like I am not as in love with God as I used to be. So I need to change so that I can be in love with him. And he says to them, repent and do the first works. So remember, repent and repeat. Do the first works that you did. Go back to the very beginning of wanting to know God, wanting to love God, expressing your love and your thanksgiving to him, making sure you are deeply in love with Christ. If you have those lack of feelings, then you go back to those first things. And if you say, well, I've never really had those emotions towards God. I've never really had that love towards God then you've got to come back now and begin to to effectively plant those seeds like you would in a marriage. If you were a marriage counselor and you had people in front of you that told you we just don't feel like we love each other anymore, what advice would you give them to be able to recultivate that love for one another? What will you do to recultivate that love between you and God? Now, the question is asked, whether or not this means that they've lost their salvation. And the question is asked because of that, because he says, or else, still in verse five, I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. So they are the light of the world. That's what the church is. And he's going to remove the lampstand, which is his presence in the light of the world. And so is he saying that he's going to take away their salvation. And I've shared with you before, I don't know where I stand on the one saved, always saved argument. I knew where I stood for 30 years, and then I came to the point where I was like, you know, there's just so many passages that talk about our security in Christ, but there are passages also that warn us about not leaving Christ. And we saw a lot of those in the book of Galatians, where when we were covering it, I was like, I still am in a spot where. I don't know. And maybe, maybe the Bible wants us in that spot. If we leave him, he'll come after us and he's writing a letter to them and he's certainly coming after them. Removing their lampstand, is that a loss of salvation? Removing his presence from among them, is that a loss of salvation? It would certainly seem like it if, if his presence isn't gonna be with us anymore. The Bible says where two or three of you gather together in my name, there I am with you. What well, we do know whether or not that's a loss of salvation for any individual, what we do know, it's it's the loss of effectiveness for a church. He says, I will stop using the church that no longer is in love with me. Even though you're doing all these great things, they could write a book on how to do ministry. But if we aren't in love with him, then he's gonna take away his presence. And remove our lampstand. Now today, in the city of Ephesus, it's all ruins. There's no church there. There's no community there. There's only tourists there. It is amazing ruins, but there's no church there. So the light was indeed removed from there. Now, he says to him, unless you repent. So again, there's the two times, repent. So what do you do if you say, I just don't feel like I love God anymore. I don't, I don't have any feelings towards him. What do you do? You repent and you start to do the things you can do to cultivate it. Feelings, it's been said, are the caboose of the train. So when you turn and you say, I want to now draw closer to God. I want to find him more. I want to love him. That it's going to take a while before your feelings come around. The engine is your repentance and saying, I'm going to do these things. And the caboose is the feelings that come around. I just want to say that because you can go and try to do the things I'm going to share with you in a moment about doing if you feel like you've left your first love and it may be a while before the feelings come along. But it's repentance that's important so that you can get to the place where you have this love for God. So the Bible says in the book of James, draw unto him and draw near to him and he will draw near to you. This is a promise from God so that if you're feeling far from God, you're feeling like you don't love him, then you draw near to him. An Old Testament equivalent given to Israel is Isaiah 29, verses 11 and 12 and 13, I think, where it says, I know the plans for you, says the Lord, plans for you to prosper, to have a future and a hope. And then he says in verse 13, I think it is, you will search for me and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. And so you say, Lord, I want to know you and I want to search for you with diligence. I want to repent. I want to draw near to you. And as you take a step towards God, God will take a step towards you. But I also want to quote the next verse in that passage. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you is often quoted. The next verse isn't. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, is the very next verse. So that if you have sin in your life, then get it out. If you are double-minded, meaning you are living for the world and living for God, no wonder you fall away from the love. I don't think that was the church of Ephesus. So you could fall away from being in love with God or leave your first love, still having doing things that are right. They abhorred those who were wicked. Now, the Bible also says to walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walking in the Spirit, you have the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But the one we're interested in now is love. So if you are apart from God, and you don't know what to do, you're feeling like I don't love Him anymore, you draw near to Him, you start seeking Him, you go for a walk with Him, you look to cultivate time with Him, you draw near to Him, and you walk in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit is to keep things right between you and God and to walk in the the power of the Holy Spirit. And if, if you feel like you don't have the Holy Spirit, well, everyone who's saved, born again, has the Holy Spirit. But I also believe that when you ask Him for the power of the Holy Spirit, He gives it to you. And as you walk in the Spirit, you're going to have love. The next thing is that you would delight in the Lord. The Old Testament says delight in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. What are you delighting in? Are you delighting in God? Do you spend your spare time learning about God or delighting in the world? Whatever you are delighting in, that's what your heart's going to follow. If you're delighting in this world, your desires are going to be for this world. If you're delighting in the Lord, then they're going to be for him. Also in the New Testament, Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask whatever you desire and it will be done for you. So your desire is connected to abiding in his word and abiding in Christ. Just like your desire in the Old Testament was connected to delighting in the Lord. These are all ways that we can affect our desires and affect our relationship with him. These are some very practical things that we can do. Seek for God with all your heart, draw near to Him, He'll draw near to you, cleanse your hands, your sinners. Purify your heart, you double-minded. Delight in the Lord, He'll give you the desires of your heart. Abide in Christ, and let His word abide in you. Walk in the spirit. These are very uh, practical ways in which you can draw closer to Christ, things that you can leave here and do if you feel like you are no longer in love with Him the way you could be. And maybe things every one of us should do. Because we should cultivate it. Just like we should cultivate a marriage, right? If you're, if you're like, well, I don't cultivate my marriage anymore. Well, maybe that says something. I don't know. Now, he says this. Um, but, this I ha- but this you have, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So theologians uh, and pastors have differed over what the Nicolaitans are. It literal, uh, Nicholas, Nicolae, Nicholas, the name Nicholas, literally means victory of the people. That's what it means, Nicholas. So if you're Nicky and you're here today, victory of the people. That's what your name means, Nicholas. Okay? And, and it's a Greek name, by the way. So it comes, the Greek word victory over the people comes from Nicholas. So they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. So some say that victory over the people is... A type of the priesthood being established over the church. That there were these people that were establishing the priesthood over the church. Now, we don't believe that there's any mediators between us and God. The Catholic Church, other churches have priests. We don't. I don't know that that, that's what this is saying. And the reason they say it is they'll usually translate the word Nicolaitans, the priesthood over the laity. Laity is people. And so Nicolaitans, the priesthood over the people, but it's not, it's victory over the people or victory of the people, quite literally, not victory over the people. So I don't, I don't know that that has any validity, but you've got to know that we don't have anything really solid. However, church fathers wrote what they thought the Nicolaitans were. They wrote what they, what they thought it was. Not like, I don't know what it is, but I think this is what it is. They wrote what it was to them. And they said it was them following Nicholas of Antioch. And therefore, they were called Nicolaitans. And Nicholas of Antioch taught, then there was a Nicholas of Antioch who taught this, that your Christianity and what you do are not connected. That it's all about love and it's all about the heart and it's all about grace. And if I, if I, if I have sexual sin in my life, that doesn't matter. Because God loves me and God has grace. And so it was kind of this licentiousness within the church that you could sin and it's okay because God loves you. I think of Romans 6, 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who continue to die in sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even, though, even so we should walk in newness of life. So he dealt with that very issue, that we cannot say grace abounds, therefore I can live in sin. That is probably what the deeds of the Nicolaitans is. We have evidence for that in several early church fathers that wrote that this was them following the teachings of Nicholas of Antioch. Now, if that is the case, then that's happening today in progressive Christianity. In, there was a great awakening in the 1700s, 1740 or so in the United States. And the great awakening led to the evangelical church in America. And things like the evangelical church in other parts of the world. But then in the early 1900s, there was a liberal theology that was developed that believed that the miracles weren't, didn't really happen, that the Bible isn't really true, that it's really not God's word. And that first wave of liberal Christians died because it, you're only gonna go to church for a little while while somebody tells you, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. He really wasn't born of a virgin. The Bible really isn't true. God didn't part the Red Sea. You, you can only go to so much of that until you finally are like, then why do I, why am I going? You may believe it, but pretty soon you're like, I don't need to go to church because none of it's true. And so the liberal church died. Today, it has resurfaced. It's kind of gone through this. It was the emergent church for a while. It was the new age church for a while. It's all kind of the same group. And now it's the progressive church. And the progressive church believe that they're progressing. And they affirm homosexuality. They say, you know, it's about love and God loves them and it's all about grace. It's the same thing Nicholas of Antioch taught. It is the teaching of the Nicolaitans that are around today. And it is creeping into churches in Tucson. There are, there are friends that I know who are believing this way, who have gone down the progressive road. And it's tragic and I love them and I hate that they've gone down that road. But God did have that for them that they did not believe in this licentiousness. They did not believe that you could just do whatever you want to do. And once you affirm homosexuality, you're affirming the sexual acts of homosexuality as not being a problem before God, then why would heterosexual acts be a problem before God? Why would sex outside of marriage or affairs or anything be an offense against God? And so there's a licentiousness that enters into the church and this is I believe what the deeds of the Nicolaitans are. And I think we can be pretty solid. There is no evidence that this name that people have attached to it, the laity, the priesthood over the laity, it's not even what the word says. And there is no evidence that that's what the word is. I'm not saying that the priesthood entering into the church wasn't a problem, because I think at a certain time it was a problem. I'm just saying this isn't it. That we know from early church fathers who were much closer to this writing that they were following Nicholas of Antioch, who taught licentiousness. That as a Christian, you can just be involved in as much sin as you want to be involved in. They hated that. So they hated that. They did what was right. They hated evil. They tested false apostles. They did work for God. They persevered, but they left their first love and they needed to repent and do the first works, which are things we talked about doing, in order to make sure that you're in love with Christ. And if you're not, then just keep doing it. And someone may say to me, well, for years I've been seeking God and I just don't feel that love. And and I would say, continue to do it. Continue to love him, continue to serve him, continue to follow him. And the feelings will follow. It's just you got a long train. (laughs) The engine's there, the caboose is there. It's just going to take a while for it to come about. But keep doing it. And also, we don't trust in our feelings, we trust in God. But I don't think that this love, even though the agape word that is used, is all about just service because they already have service. They're already doing things for God. So leaving their first love has got to have something to do with their their feelings towards God, their fondness, their affection towards God, even though the word agape is used. So he says uh, then, verse seven, he who has an ear, and this is gonna be in every verse as well. I mean, every, every letter as well. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus was fond of saying this when he taught as well. He would say, "You who has an ear to hear, it's kind of like a check, are you hearing this? Do you have an ear? If you're hearing this, then it's for you. And, it's, and that's important for us when we're looking at this. Because we could go, I'm the church of Philadelphia, I'm not the church of Ephesus. I'll be honest with you, I don't know, 20 years ago or so, when I was teaching through the book of Revelation, I came to this passage and I thought, This sounds very much like Calvary Chapel to me. That we're doing all these things. All these things that they were doing are things that we do. We test false teachers. We hang on to the word of God. We do the work that God's called us to do. We're seeing people saved. We're trying to be as effective as we can be. Is it possible that we are in the process of maybe leaving our first love? When the beginning of Calvary Chapel during the Jesus movement and the hippies coming to Christ was all about that love for the Lord. And may we never follow in the, foot's, uh, the footsteps of Ephesus. If there's any church that I think that Calvary Chapel is the closest to besides Philadelphia, which every church is gonna say there's a faithful church, right? It would be the church of Ephesus. Not that we've left our first love, but we're doing all the other things they did. And so we could be in danger of saying, well, we're a church that does things right. We're a church that's doing the things that God wants us to do and not pursue that deep and profound love for Christ. He who has an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, and every letter will have an overcoming statement, to him who overcomes, in this case, it's overcoming not loving him, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, this statement is an interesting statement because I told you about the temple to Diana of Ephesus. That was one of the seven ancient wonders. It was first built 700 B.C. Ephesus was established as a church. I mean, excuse me. Ephesus was established as a city a thousand years before Christ. So 700 B.C., the temple was built. It was destroyed. It was rebuilt. It was destroyed and rebuilt. It said that it was built by a large tree. In the ancient world, there were these large trees in different parts of the world that were markers. There's the tree of Mamre that Abraham talks about. There are a couple of places here in the United States where there were large trees that weren't talked about in the Bible, obviously, but there were large trees that the root system of the trees is so huge that we know that the trees were much bigger than any of the sequoias that are around today, which are the largest trees that we know of today. So, because Artemis of Ephesus or Diana of Ephesus Was the goddess of fertility, and she helped people bring life into the world. That tree was called the tree of life, or referred to as the tree of life. And so God says, "I'm going to give you the tree of life to eat." And it's not this tree, that that Artemis, that this temple Artemis is built by. It's in the paradise of God, and this ancient seven wonders of the world, this temple of to Diana of Ephesus, was considered to be the most beautiful of all the ancient seven wonders. All of the, the white marble and all of the statues that were inside. The statue of Artemis and the statue of the other gods that were there. Statues all over this city. Now, and, and God's saying, I'm the one who gives you life. I, and, I'm, and the tree of life is in the paradise of God, not in this beautiful temple to this goddess. Three things in closing. Number one, test false teachers. Work with patience. And all these things for Christ is a good thing. It's not bad. We don't want to go, well, I'm struggling with my love, so I'm going to stop doing things for Jesus. No, we just need to put an effort in making sure that we maintain that love with Him. Number two, God's not, work, not, not pleased with work alone. Doesn't matter how much you do for Him. If you don't love Him, He's willing to take the light away. He's willing to take His presence away. So doing work for him, you're like, I'm doing all kinds of things for you. And that's not what he wants. Yes, he wants us to do work for him, but out of love. Love is that key thing that we do it for. And finally, we will one day be in the paradise of God. We will one day delight in him. And he wants us to delight in him now that we will one day live forever eating the, the true tree of life that is in, in the paradise of God. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this passage that we're able to take time and really look at their lack of love, even though they were doing what was right. And Lord, we want to evaluate and search our hearts. And if by chance we have moved away from that love for you, we pray that you would help us to be able to make that stand. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.